I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Hong Kong today at the offices of Paul Husband, who's one of the world's leading experts on Asian retail real estate, uh, and author the author of the book The Cult of the Luxury Brand. It's good to see you, Paul. Good to see you, Mike. It's been a little while. It's been a little while. Yeah. Uh, we, we we met, I think, uh, quite a few years ago when I when I first moved to Hong Kong. Yes. Uh, through a common friend of ours, uh, yeah. Sean. I think. Sean. I'm sure yeah. he's going to be, be listening to this podcast yeah. now that he knows we're mentioning him by name. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I was always intrigued uh, because when I first moved to Hong Kong, I, I of course read your book. Thank and, you. And uh, yeah. Hong Kong is one of those unusual places on the planet where you know despite the rise of the internet yeah. uh, this is still a temple to the to the gods of uh, <laughs> luxury yeah. retail and yeah. physical real estate um, the, the normal rules don't quite apply here do they no I mean uh, as you say Hong Kong being such a dense uh, and uh, we're such a dense city such a small intense uh, but obviously highly uh, commercial City, we've got so much spending power. We've got so many tourists coming. Um, we've got such limited land that we, we are. Uh, yes, you're quite right. A, a pretty unique uh, place in the world where to shop online, unless it's something you can't find in Hong Kong, or the price is, is so uh, much more attractive, um, it doesn't seem really worth it because uh, just a few minutes from any, from anywhere, you've got great retail, um, and. We've been attracting over 50 million tourists a year hmm. uh, for the last few years. Hong Kong's long been known as a shopping shopping haven. And, and when you, in many ways, there's also been like kind of a lab uh, in which new types of retail experiences have been trialed and yeah, and, and uh, invented or discounted to some extent. But it's certainly um, it's certainly been, I think, a lab for um, luxury brands because. Um, of course, luxury brands considered it critically important as the China market opened probably some started over some ten plus years ago that it was critically important to have a store in Hong Kong first if you were entering the market or a flagship that you might be thinking of rolling out in China. It was important to open in uh, a store in, for, for a brand coming to China, Greater China, for the first time. It was important to have a flagship store in Hong Kong so that you could engage with mainland Chinese customers and test. Um, product lines and, and customer service on them before pushing on to Shanghai and Beijing. Right. Uh, one of the big malls you're involved in here um, is one of the ones that uh, you pass through when you come through the the Airport Express, mm. which is the Elements Mall. Yeah. And I was really amazed when I was looking at the back history of that because uh, that was put together by the MTR, which yeah. was a subway. Yeah. But it, can you tell a little bit about the story behind that? Because the MTR has one of the most unique economic operating models, I indeed. think, of, yeah. of any subway operator. Yes. Yeah, no, the MTR, I think, is one of the the few profitable um, um, subway uh, system operators in the world. And they have this... Um, uh, unlike, uh, unlike the New York Metro. <laughs> or the, perhaps the London <laughs> Underground. Uh, right. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Um, no, simply, uh, I think they have, um, they have the rights to develop the real estate above each station. Um, and so uh, there's so many stations in the network. Uh, they often joint venture with, with uh, local Hong Kong developers to create some of the, really the world's most outstanding mixed-use developments. Right. So, I mean, two great examples in Hong Kong are 
as you mentioned, I, uh, Elements, which has ICC, which is the tallest tower in Hong Kong, 118 stories, um, and would be in the 10 tallest towers in the world, I believe, and IFC on the Hong Kong Island side, both of them on the Airport Express line, which is also developed by the MTR. So the MTR is, as well as being a subway operator, it's also a... Uh, a very prolific real estate, uh, very experienced real estate development company. Right. And so the, the real estate actually underwrites the cost of these line extensions. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, and Elements actually is the world's largest property um, real estate project built on a podium. Um, so it's 1.1 million square meters in total scale. There are about over 6,000 apartments uh, on a podium of two levels of uh, uh, of retail, of, of each each of the two levels being 500,000 square feet, 21 towers on top, um, and yeah, 6,000 apartments, all in one single development. That's uh, extraordinary, the scale. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for brands, uh, in the last sort of 10 years or so, um, Hong Kong, China has been a huge source of their growth. Yes. But of, in recent times, uh, things are looking a bit shaky. Well, what's yeah. really been? Why is China, in particular, such a headache now for the big luxury brands? I think there are several reasons. I mean, uh, China has been growing so rapidly as a luxury market had been growing so rapidly for so many years. Brands had uh, many brands had opened um, more stores in China more quickly than they'd ever done in any other market in the world. Mm. Um, three, or depending on where you uh, are, between fast fashion and luxury. Um, Combined have opened anywhere between ten and a hundred stores uh, uh, a year in China, um, or at least even for the most premium luxury brands, one or two new stores a year for the last several years. Um, and uh, with the anti-corruption campaign, um, and uh, it, we 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 certainly seen a uh, an impact on retail on, on luxury goods sales in China. That's uh, I think over expansion. The impact of the anti-corruption campaign um, have probably been the two biggest factors that have um, uh, caused a decline recently in luxury sales. And that's had a knock-on effect in Macau as well, right. um, because the anti-corruption campaign uh, has uh, um, obviously uh, gambling millions of dollars in Macau is not something that you want to do um, if you're if you're wanting to come out of the eye of the government when you take a holiday, you go to Macau. Um, so gambling and gambling um, revenues and retail sales kind of correlate together. So a decline in one, decline in gambling leads to a decline in, in retail sales. When, when these brands were looking at China, were they really just targeting the tier one cities or have they now started pushing into yeah. tier two, tier three? Yeah, they were. They did start in, in, indeed with the tier one cities. Um, so it was really Shanghai, then Beijing. Yeah. And then there became a, a sort of top 20 uh, some of these cities. tier two cities have still got like 10 million people in them, right? Uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so brands are even through distributors uh, have, have gone to tier three and some have been looking at tier four cities. Hmm. Um, it's still a huge market and there's still a you know, fast growing middle class. Uh, one of the projects that we're about to complete is the new um, uh, shopping village within uh, Shanghai Disney Resort, right. uh, which will open this summer. Um, 
And I think Disney are expecting over 10 million visitors in the first year. It will be the world's biggest Disney, in fact, bigger than Orlando. Um, so there's a there's still a huge middle class. That sounds like a vision of hell to me. <laughs> I, I, I like I like I like Hong Kong Disney because I you know I can imagine my kids I can walk around the whole thing in 30 minutes. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's true. Although. You know, one of the interesting things I think about uh, Disney in China, though, is that, of course, kids didn't grow up with Mickey and Minnie. Yeah. Uh, they didn't know Mickey. So they have no cultural context. How, how do you explain um Well, I think the they, they started at sort of Toy Story, maybe. Uh, right. And so that's why you find a Toy Story hotel. Oh, so, so um, Buzz Lightyear was their Mickey Mouse. Yeah, say. something like that. Yeah. So, so I think Disney uh, Shanghai will feel very different to other Disney, um, right. Disney resorts. Um because, quite simply, everyone, uh, the other markets, knew Mickey and Minnie uh, much better than China. And uh, so Pixar, you know, and that, I think, is quite reflective of China as a whole, is this race for modernity. Right. Um, so you think Darth future. Vader will be like a cute, cuddly figure for the next generation uh, could of, well be. Could <laughs> of well Chinese be. Could teenagers? Well be. Yeah. Right. That's, yeah. I mean, to some extent, that, that issue of cultural translation is something that all brands must face going into China. Mm. Uh, when the when the big luxury brands you're working with were looking for sites, yes, and they're designing their yeah. experience centers, what are some of the different things they had to think about that they wouldn't have to worry about if they're opening in Paris or London? Well, I think one of the uh, kind of uh, uh, on reflection, quite amusing, uh, perhaps oversights of many brands. Let me say is. In the early in the early two thousands, I remember in Shanghai we were involved in one of the first projects, uh, three on the Bund, and many luxury brands opened on the the Bund, the historic uh, waterfront. In this Shanghai. is like the sort of Champs Elysees of uh, yeah, it is. Uh, uh, and the buildings Shanghai. are beautiful. Yeah, the buildings are even more beautiful than the Champs Elysees for sure. I yeah. mean, they were built uh, by the British and the French, uh, I think, in the twenties. So they're stunning, stunning, stunning buildings that would immediately appeal, I think, to a Mr. Armani or to a... Hmm. Um, because the provenance is the same as, uh, you know, Milan. I mean, it, it feels like you know, these these are... You can correlate them to the great buildings of Europe. There's so many of them. Um, so many brands rush to open flagship stores on the Bund. But the problem is, is that it's far from where the affluent live. Um, uh, there was no parking. Uh, <laughs> tie ties... Uh, you know, sort of high society ladies don't want to walk you know hundreds of yards between these enormous buildings um, on on a on a street thronging with Not great tourists for heels, from right? all over the world, <laughs> you know, from all over China. Mm. Um, so, I think retailers were drawn to historic buildings as they sort of felt safe and they could relate to them and they're beautiful uh, mm. in, in in the early years, only to find that commercially they weren't very viable. Um, so that was one of the early learnings, I think. Um, and what's been more successful, things like Shen Tiandi? Well, I think um, Shen Tiandi has been incredibly successful for food. I think they've struggled to integrate retail right. well. Um, they so this is like Shen Tiandi is like a village-like concept, yeah. isn't it? It's uh, the the developers very successful. Shoyan, they took the traditional Shikaman uh, Shanghainese houses, like the hutongs of Beijing. Yeah, these beautiful brick houses, and they literally rebuilt them because. Shoyong is a, is a construction company uh, uh, at, at its heart, or well, certainly started out uh, as as that. Um, and so they rebuilt these uh, at a long street, essentially, um, of these houses and put some, an amazing mix of food, of, of restaurants, of lounges, of clubs, of bars, um, fantastically successful. 
then wanted to add retail, which I think has been less successful. Hmm. Um, they've added sort of new malls on the end of what's now a very long street, um, but done very well with the food. I think the um, the successful retail centers in Shanghai, definitely Plaza 66 on Nanjing Road, has really for a long time been the leading luxury project in China for a good 10 years, but surpassed recently by Xinkong Place in hmm. Beijing. Right. Um, it's in the finance. That's in the finance. That's in the yeah. It's in the um, it's in the CBD. Um, mm. So it's in um, uh, near China World. Um, right. Uh, and that was a joint venture between um, uh, Taiwan Mitsukoshi um, and Shinkong Mitsukoshi and uh, and Hualiang Group from from Beijing. Mm. And uh, is I believe now the most productive. Uh, more hybrid, more department store project in, in, in China. It's really interesting when you look at the, the broad trends around retail now because this, we've sort of gone through the cycle of everyone saying that malls are going to die and department stores are going to yeah. die. It's all going to go yeah. online. We're all just going to buy from Amazon. And you're even seeing now pure play uh, retailers in the US, yeah. online retailers yeah. like uh, Warby Parker and uh, Bonobos and um, Birchbox and even Blue Nile experimenting now with physical stores. Mm. Uh, which are very productive. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of what I guess people who've worked in real estate all this time have been saying, you know, for the last 10 years. So what is it about physical locations now in the 21st century? If you're really going to engage people mm. and create great experiences in a mall or a you know, retail environment, what are the things that you're seeing that really work and that your brands are demanding to have in these, these, new, these new centers? Um... Well, I think it's a combination, really, of um, certainly there is a push to be ever more wondrous, to be ever larger. Uh, I mean, Dubai and the Middle East generally are probably the uh, major growth areas of the of the world, the UAE, in terms of uh, super what we would call super regional scale uh, yeah. malls. They're like cities. They're, they're like cities. I mean, yeah. people go running there in the mornings, running, you know, yeah. essentially make a running track. Uh, I've got friends who've gone there, they've just never come out. <laughs> it's like they're the, still there. It's like they've been Bermuda trying. Yeah, they're on the missing persons <laughs> list. Um, now, you're talking of retail centers four to five million square feet in size. I mean, wow. more of the Emirates has long been famous for having its indoor ski run. Hmm. Uh, it's a black run. Uh, they're adding, I think, a second now. Um, uh, Dubai Mall is the current kind of latest and greatest, and it is um, an extraordinary project. I mean, the lake beside the mall. Uh, this is where the Burj Khalifa is, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. The, it's all part of um, of downtown Dubai. And they're building a new one, aren't they? That's going to be like this the mall of the world. With this, yeah. with this sort of air-conditioned dome. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So that's supposed to be about 8 million square feet. Um, although I think it may be, may be trimmed back. But so the sheer scale um, and therefore the variety of retail um, continues to uh, those sort of projects continue to grow ever larger uh, I think the aquarium in Dubai Mall is quite spectacular to come you know, to be right there literally in the middle of the mall you can mm. walk up close uh, and see manta rays and sharks and uh, uh, so ski runs aquariums things that are not that necessarily and not necessarily that evolutionary still continue to be built yeah. but I think scale continues to be wondrous variety of stores and restaurants I think theming uh, elements is a good example where I think was a was a kind of leap forward in in the evolution of retail centres with 
a kind of light touch on theming where you walk into different zones uh, with a different different materials, a different aesthetic, um, trying to link that to a particular pro- uh, category of retail, like earth could be food, things that come from the earth, um, uh, metal, precious metal, uh, equating to the luxury zone, becoming the luxury zone. It's funny though, these are still very physical, sensory type innovations. I mean, besides, and we're talking about this before, besides the, you know, the the directory is now going to touch screens. Yeah. (laughs) There hasn't been much. Giant, yeah, besides. uh, (laughs) But besides that, there hasn't really been much kind of influence of technology and retail design that's changed, you know, Uh, the last 20 years almost. I agree, and I think people could get carried away with the sort of importance of technology and, and that it should be doing more in the customer experience. I mean, I think it certainly in marketing terms, it's it's been very powerful. I mean, Burberry have long been known as leaders in the way that they use digital um, as part of their store experience. And to um, yeah, with virtual changing rooms and uh, yeah, and Prada, I mean, the Prada Prada Epicenter were the yeah. you know, first. I remember Rem Coolhouse with with that, where you could basically see uh, what you look like from behind and send pictures to friends as you tried to, uh, to where, where was that store that was that, that was um, well, the Soho New York right um, yeah uh, so they they basically uh, were the first I think to use that to use technology to enable you to basically um, see how you looked uh, all around and I think send I'm not sure if they were the first where you could actually send a picture of yourself to friends. That was probably pre-social media. But uh, I'd be fascinated to know whether letting people see what they look like from behind in clothes increases or decreases sales. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think technology. People think technology might should be doing more. Probably let's call it in the front of house. But I think personally, so much is still down to the basics of <coughs> excuse me, excellent customer service. Um, still. There's a huge difference between um, even in the center of, in, in central in Hong Kong between um, the service quality of stores. I think you can, uh, though excellent service in store makes for a very good customer experience. Yeah. Um, the right mix of stores and restaurants, um, uh, the friendly hello from the you know, from the, the cafe like Fuel is a very good one in the landmark uh, from New Zealand. Um, uh, that kind of familiarity, because people, I think that's one of the reasons that uh, the you know this this sort of prediction that bricks and mortar would fade away has not happened, because we're all social animals. Um, you know, we like we like community. It's, we like to be. We like the Medina and the, yeah, and, we like and to acknowledge. We like the yeah. yeah, we like to like to, to engage. And so I think for that reason, um, uh, you know, bricks and mortar remains strong. Um, and um, and I guess for that reason as well, you probably don't have high hopes for robotics in uh, replacing human assistants. I don't think. I, I saw when I was in Tokyo, I was into SoftBank, and I, you know, I saw Pepper. They're yeah. they're kind of the robot they're using to hopefully replace customer service agents. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen Pepper, but I think it'll be a long time. For, I think it would be quite fascinating um, for customers initially hmm. to engage with a robot. Um, but it'd have to be. I mean, I'm interested to see what Mark Zuckerberg does uh, with. Uh, um, with his new AI, he's going to create a robot. in his in his house. Yeah, in his yeah. house. So, but I think yeah, I would imagine it's going to be a solid five to ten plus years before we see all 
humans replaced behind the information counter with robots. It would be probably easier for him just to hire the voice actor, who did uh, the G's voice over an Iron Man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have it on loudspeakers inside yeah. the house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about China. Uh, some of the other markets that are now mm. uh, coming online uh, that you're involved in are yeah. uh, Sri Lanka and Myanmar and um, yeah. to some extent uh, Africa. When we spoke before, you said these weren't even emerging markets, they were embry- yeah. embryonic. <laughs> I really, uh, I, I, I call them embryonic markets because um, when we first started working in, in Yangon and Colombo about three years ago, you were, funnily, oddly, Charles and Keith always seems to be the first brand to arrive in these markets, the shoe brand. But you're just, Mango, you, you, but you essentially would see just two or three retailers that you had, had heard of. Um, and how were they there? Was it because these distributors? Uh, distributors. Yeah. It wasn't that they were, they've got like a team of um, a wizard, pike-headed yeah, uh, anthropologists yeah, yeah, on, the, on, the, on the cutting edge of markets. I think it was probably quite a smart distributor who saw that that product, that price point, would have a lot of appeal and 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 uh, connected with the contact of those brands. And I, I'm imagining. I mean, all of these markets. I, I think it will. Markets like Sri Lanka and Myanmar, it will be a long time before brands operate their businesses directly. So they're going mm-hmm. to be using franchisees, distributors, licensees for a long time to come. Um, but there's very, very little there today. And it's exciting to see um, the possibilities of market. I mean, Myanmar has obviously been opening very quickly to the outside world in the last three or four years. Um, and I think it will be even more rapid now with the elections uh, having just happened. Um, so it, what will be interesting is to see if they take a giant leap uh, like China did and, and just sort of um, very quickly uh, we're, we're seeing quite a, a quite a substantial set of brands uh, in the market um, as opposed to a very slow organic growth. Oh. It, each market will be, of course, be different. And one of the factors that will be interesting in, in Sri Lanka is when we started on our project there, uh, Colombo City Centre, three or four casinos had um, been granted licenses. The elections came and uh, the new prime minister cancelled all the licenses and said, you know, we don't want you casino operators or your money. Please be happy never to see you in Sri Lanka. Um, so I, I think uh, that will have had some impact. But I think Sri Lanka is, uh, you know, there's, there's basically been nothing there for so long. And now that the war with the Tamil Tigers is over, uh, it's a fantastic tourist destination. I think, and, and they they are definitely open for business. They're very pro. In these new greenfields markets, how does it generally play out? I mean, does someone who just uh, put together a project where they build like a like a high quality luxury destination, all the typical luxury brands move in, and they build residences above? Is it kind of just a simple, yeah, pretty standard blueprint? Yeah, I mean, usually you'll find, uh, as is the case in say Colombo or, or or Yangon at the moment, there'll be there are four or five quite, quite large mixed use projects that will combine. A hotel or hotels, um, office towers, service apartments, and retail, hmm. uh, because there's so much demand for those. You know, it's very hard to find quality housing in in Yangon, because there just hasn't you know, there hasn't been the need for it until recently. So, for an executive moving from the states, a CEO, or, um, there's very little housing supply. Um, there's very little grade A office. Um, so there's there's a big need for that, and so hence mixed use developments. There are several uh, being built, um, and, and there will be many, many more to come. I, I'm always amazed at the kind of the resilience of some of these brands because you go to some markets or countries that almost appear war torn. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you just think you yeah. just like, you would not operate there. And I there know. they are. I, know. I, I mean, I was amazed even like, you know, Beirut's always on, on the kind of verge uh, yeah. of some kind Absolutely. of civil war. Yeah. And the, the whole downtown Beirut area now has been transformed into this incredible like luxury precinct. Uh, yeah, I, I'm about to uh, have a call tomorrow with somebody about two projects in Iran, uh, which I would never have ever thought of. I was, as a, I haven't been to Iran before. Right. But, uh, oh, but Iran's going to be an amazing market. I mean, it's it's already the dominant middle class of, of the UAE. Mm. Uh, but my, I, I I knew very little about it. I, I had kind of perception that it was a dusty. <laughs> <laughs> but clearly, uh, uh, no, there are. There's a lot of spending power there. I had. Never thought I might work in Iran. I mean, it's not confirmed yet, but to be discussing potential projects in Iran is sort of exciting and scary at the same time. Um, do, do you think it's always going to be this dynamic of these new emerging or embryonic markets looking to European brands for their heritage and, and stories? Um, or well, do you think eventually they, they, you're going to see the emergence of domestic Chinese, Indian, Well, I think African in brands? any market there are, there are typically great... Um, uh, local brands. Or, um, I mean, if you go to the Middle East, there are fantastic fragrance stores. Obviously, in in India, I mean, there are amazing sarong makers. It's quite tough in women's ready to wear in India, as you can imagine, because every woman wears a sarong. Sorry, yeah. yeah, or sorry, um, sarong. Sorry. Um, so, um, uh, and, and equally in the Middle East. So, I think. I mean, fragrance in the Middle East um, is, I mean, they have some of the most wonderful perfumeries. And so there's there's always, I mean, in, in Yangon, we have the most beautiful uh, objets d'art and antiquities stores um, there that uh, should be included in, 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 in many projects offer. So, yes, I think there are always going to, the consumers, especially because many of these markets, the average age of consumers is very young. I mean, the average age of the in, in Vietnam, um, the population is about 25. So in Vietnam, for example, you've got this enormous base of well-educated um, young consumers that are as tapped into what's happening with you know, Nicki Minaj or Katy Perry or Taylor Swift or Calvin Harris as anyone else. Hmm. Um, so they're going to want, you know, they're going to want Uniqlo, they're going to want hip fashion, they know what it is. Um, and at the more affluent end of the scale, you know, you have... The, the elite, the wealthy in these new markets like Myanmar and, and, and like Sri Lanka, who've probably been buying Swiss watches and having suits made on Savile Row for some time. And so they're going to be very attracted to having the luxury brands in their home market. That's so interesting. I mean, I mean both, uh, I guess, the wider availability of travel plus the internet has meant that both ends of the spectrum, as you say, the yeah. millennials plus the ultra-wealthy yeah. yes. are, are more global than they've ever been. Are more global than they've ever been. And, now, and so it makes sense that the retail that they are either already buying or, or wish to buy would come to their market. Um, so I think that, that that's for sure going to be the case. Um, and that, that there's a logic to that. Um, but it is, it is fascinating just over these last few years when you think about kids, millennials, you know, in these, in these um, uh, what we might have thought of as backwater markets, actually, you know, not you know, being very up to date. Um, and so there's a lot of a lot of pent up aspiration, a lot of pent up desire to have. Um, I think there'll be some great multi brand stores in these markets that are selling. Uh, a friend of mine here, Kevin Poon, has a, a great uh, set of stores that focus on um, kind of California cool casual denim brands, t shirt brands, sneaker brands. I think there'll be a lot of demand for that. 
the, the, the curation and editing and knowledge yeah. part is a big part of that. Yes. And, and, I, and I think that's something that really struck me about even retail here in Hong Kong, like brands like mm. Lane Crawford. They take often quite obscure Western yeah. brands, but yeah. they curate them almost like a museum. Yes. You know, with back with brand stories and they yes. they help people feel happy about spending more money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I think this is um customers are intrigued. I mean, I, I went to uh, a jeweler's the other day in uh, an office, anonymous office building in Central um, and was given a tour of uh, the workshop, which was up to, I mean, it was on like the 10th floor of a small office building. And you, we were, at one minute, we were in the most plush kind of reception area, uh, having gone through a high security sort of vacuum <laughs> tour lock, <laughs> uh, sealed lock. Uh, and then you know, we're led into this workshop, which honestly was just like flying sparks and you know, and kind of wooden benches and you know, about twenty Chinese artisans um, with precious stones and you know, and, and mess. Not not mess, but I mean, it was it was like a big workshop. Um, uh, everyone with their particular area of expertise could not have been more more uh, different to the to front of house experience, but fascinating to see. Uh, in what would become a ring for three or four hundred thousand Hong Kong dollars, uh, the work that goes into the setting, um, into the stone selection, and so I think customers are have here are a little bit starved of that. Uh, whereas the customers in Europe or residents in Europe have seen that, uh, um, and so we're always trying to show customers more of the provenance of a brand. Uh, in in in, uh, in our work with retailers in our clients' retail centres here. Paul, it's been great seeing you. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show, and uh, thank you. Man. Looking forward to hanging out with you next time I'm in Hong Kong. Absolutely, pleasure. Thanks, man. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash-between-worlds.